Hi everyone, Emma here. Just a quick note before we start uh, to remind you that we have a listener survey open at the moment for a little while longer. So if you would be willing to share some feedback, we enormously appreciate it, especially Oliver. Um, if you want to follow the link, they're in the show description on your podcast app, on the show notes, which are at historyissexy.com for every episode, um, and also on our Instagram, which is historyispod. So if you don't mind giving us a few seconds, we very much appreciate it. Now enjoy the Borgias. little bit uh stuffed up and horrible but apart from that oh. i'm well how are you i just want Wintry. to mention that up top to apologize for the fact that i sound like this and i'm probably going to be real dumb because my brain is painful right. how are you <laughs> i'm good i'm good i'm excited to do some history of sexy chat i'm uh-huh. excited to get real mad about the borgias <laughs> or more specifically the many many lies that have been told about them so many lies so many lies, Janina. I was reading so many books. I read an, one by Alexandre Dumas, which was a lot of fun, in oh, fairness. That is. I mean, I did not read the Alexandre Dumas one, but the one I read, which I didn't make it all the way through of because of my, my sore brain, was just a normal history book, and it was a lot of fun. It banks. Like, this is a section of history that low-key banks, like soap opera. It does. It is proper soap opera. It is full, like... Game of Thronesy stabbing and treachery and yeah. and everyone just be holding grudges and like doing things for the so pettiest reasons and like these are kingdoms changing hands just because people don't like each other. It's great. It's what yeah. It's, it's when we talk about wars and we get all bogged down in like sieges and maneuvers. It's so boring. But when you talk about wars and it's like this guy just really fucking hated this other guy. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is what I'm into. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is a lot of that. That is um, so. The question that uh, we're answering today with uh, is because uh, it's a complicated question is from Loki Hammerschmidt, A plus name, and it is: What is the history of the Borgia family? Why are they so infamous? And is that justified? So we're going to talk a bit about who they were, what they were mm-hmm. doing. Specifically, there's like three of them that are famous. Yeah, I had really thought it was like a dynasty that spanned several generations. And, and yeah, like it no. is, like the family continued to exist. I'm sure there are still descendants of the Borgias around, but like the the Borgias that you think of, it's just one guy and his kids. It's literally one guy and two of his nine children. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really not like not that big of a deal. There's a whole other part of the family in Spain who just live in life, like not. No one thinks they're infamous at all. Yeah. Yeah. So it's literally three people, four, because I'm going to do how they get to Italy, just to be mm-hmm. kind, really. But they are basically three people who, for about mm, 20 years at a push, really fuck up Italy, <laughs> <laughs> make a lot of enemies. And those enemies then spread a huge number of rumors about them. And it, as a spoiler, my general conclusion is that they were bastards, but no more bastardly than anyone else of the period. Yeah, it was a really, a really fucked up time for both yeah. religion and politics, given that both of those two things were so 
inextricably intertwined in Italy at the time. Yeah. Pope, not so much a spiritual leader at this point in history. Really not that much at all. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to say that also, as a spoiler, because I think that if you think of the Borgias and you think specifically of Lucretia or Lucrezia, poisoning is the thing that really comes to mind, like poisoning and incest. Yeah. And we talked ages and ages and ages ago, like four years or something ago, <laughs> about Lucretia Borgia and the idea of her as a poisoner. And I, at that time, I could not find a single person who she was supposed to have poisoned. But that's somehow the image of her that remains. Yeah. But it's like the idea of the like rings that these people have and all of the mm-hmm. rest of it are very embedded in like popular culture. In fact, Lucretia Borgia personally is not accused of poisoning a single person. <laughs> Yeah. Not one. I went through like four books to find something <laughs> and found nothing. I found four people. Mm-hmm. Actually, technically, I think I found six people that her father and brother are supposed to have poisoned, but two of them are themselves. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of words. I, my brain hurts, but you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it's weak. I think it's weak inspiration points. So, yeah. So the general theme of this is they were bastards and we will talk about their bastardry. It, quite literally, if, <laughs> if we're using the legal definition of the term. <laughs> but they, they didn't do any poisonings. Sorry. And I don't think they were incestuous either. But first, did you know that they were Spanish? I did not. I did not know no. they were Spanish. That is kind of thing that you'd think you'd know because that is like the thing that is the problem with them for yeah. all of their enemies. <laughs> and you'd think that that would have been a thing that stuck around in their legend. <laughs> the fact that they're, they are Spanish and that they do not at all try to pretend that they're Italian. No, they insist. But they're, so they're Spanish. So the Borgias are a Spanish family from Valencia. So they're Catalan. They speak Catalan as their main language. And this is the main thing that makes them hugely unpopular from the beginning of their dynasty in Italy. Mm -hmm. They are around in the late 15th, early 16th century. So they come to power in the the mid-15th century when the first Borgia becomes Pope. Mm -hmm. Then they hang around for about half a century before they're all dead, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And... They start off as this family in Valencia. They're kind of undistinguished family of local nobles, basically, like mid-range, like lads with houses, not really doing anything. Landed gentry and... Yeah. Yeah. Not the kind of thing that anybody is thrilled about and of which (laughs) there were millions during European history. Yeah. Until along comes a guy called Alphonse de Borgia. I'm going to warn you now that there are a surprising amount of people in this called Alphonse and Alfonso. Very distressing. Very popular name. (laughs) (laughs) Despite being just a not good name, but very popular in 15th century Europe. So (laughs) Alphonse de Borgia becomes a member of the court of King Alfonso V of Aragon. Mm -hmm. So I told you there were a lot already. So many. This is already too many. Yeah. He is like a minor person in the court, but it turns out that he has a natural 
knack for diplomacy mm-hmm. and for being the person that you can send across Europe to go and talk to somebody and who will do the exact right amount of flattery and kind of gentle persuasion that mm-hmm. will deliver news and get them to agree to something and be able to then take that to somebody else. And he is just really, really, really good at yeah talking to different factions within Europe and different royal courts and, thrillingly at the time, different papal centres because there were three popes at one point (laughs) (laughs) and get them to agree over things. And this is very useful because at the time that he is in the court of Alfonso V, Europe is split by a thing called the Great Western Schism, (laughs) which as a primer, is the really fun 50-year period in Catholic history where there were two popes for 50 years, one in Rome and one in Avignon, everybody insisting that they were the real pope and that the other guy was an anti-pope. And then briefly at one point, there was also a third guy. (laughs) Which we've talked about before on our anti-popes episode, which was probably also a million years ago. It it was a very early one, but I highly recommend it because anti-popes are fun. (laughs) And there was a lot of like kidnapping and and popes trying to murder each other. And all of the kind of kings and nobles of Europe had to decide which pope they were going to side with, Mm -hmm. like which papal bull are you going to listen to? And everybody is excommunicating each other but from one pope. But then like if you get excommunicated from one pope, you can just go to the other pope and everyone is an infidel. And then people keep fighting each other. There's loads of invasions. It's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. In order in order to resolve it, they had to have a church council in order to make a church law to say who the real pope was. This is also one of those things that's like the problem with Christianity. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, yeah. Like because, because one of the many. This is... I mean, obviously, in the modern world, there are lots of different forms of Christianity. But, like, this happens again and again throughout history where everyone disagrees about <laughs> doctrine and creed and, like, whatever. And so you have to have counsel about it. So, like, when you yeah. talk about what Christian faith is today, then you are talking about something that is descended from all of this politics. Like, <laughs> it's not... It's so removed now because... Every so often there's like the Nicene Creed or something where people just meet up and decide and then that becomes the law. Yeah. Because it naturally leans towards like messiness and lots of little different things of little different sects of everything because it's about individual faith and individual relationship and you actually can't control that, but everyone is constantly trying to. Yes. So, (laughs) but... The problem with this particular council is that the only way at the time you can have a council is if the Pope calls one. Right. Which is fun because there are three of them and they all disagree on who is the Pope. So they had to do a load of like legal wrangling and like get some some theologians on board to find a way in which somebody else could call a council. <laughs> So that's fun. Anyway, Alphonse is very in a part, much a part of this. He is going backwards and forwards. He is talking to all the popes. He's talking to all the kings. He's talking to everybody. He becomes vice chancellor for the king of Aragon. He then rises up through the ranks even further. And when it is all sorted out, like when it is agreed that there is an actual pope and it's going to be this guy and it's going to be in Rome and everything is back to normal. Alphonse moves to Rome or is sent to Rome and becomes a cardinal Mm -hmm. in 1444. And this is like considered to be a massive meteoric rise, which goes even higher 
11 years later in 1455 when he is elected Pope. So he goes from minor elite in Spain to Pope. He's the first ever Spanish Pope and people fucking hate it. <laughs> but it's one of those things that come, seems to come out of the book I was reading had a lot of intense descriptions about the meetings where the new Pope's decided mm. and what always happens or seems to happen is that there are two main guys yes that, that are going to be pope but you need a two-thirds majority so they never actually get to be pope they just pick someone else that is a compromise that both yes. of them can agree on so and then they have both hope to control it's very very complicated <laughs> It is complicated and there is a lot of politicking, you know, there still is a lot of politicking with picking a Pope because cardinals elect them, they swap their votes, it goes on for a long time. If you've ever seen the film Habby and Paper and We Have a Pope, which is largely about those negotiations in which one cardinal who doesn't really want to be the Pope gets elected as the compromise guy Mm -hmm. and then is quite upset about the fact that he now has to be the Pope. And it's all, they'll put them under horrible conditions where they're not allowed to have nice food and the toilets don't get cleaned because they want them to get it over and done with as fast as possible. Yeah. It's great. Although in this one, he then goes missing, they elect him the Pope and then he runs away. And then they're all trapped there, (laughs) having to pretend that they're still trying to elect a Pope, even though they've elected a Pope, um, because he has (laughs) legged it out of the Vatican. It's very good. I highly recommend it. That's fantastic. But, but yeah, so basically it is a very kind of political, politically charged thing. Um, and at this time, even more so because Italy at this time is not a unified country. It's not a unified country for a good few hundred years. What it is, is lots of city states, which are run by dukes mostly and lords, mm-hmm. each of which has its own like private army. Some are more powerful than others, and one of which, one of the most powerful, like there's four big ones, which are Milan, Venice, Florence, Naples, and then across the middle is the what are called the Papal States. Mm-hmm. And that is basically a big area which is politically controlled by the Pope. Yeah, so the Pope is essentially a king yeah. of this sort of section yes. of Italy and also kind of rules over lots of the dukes of other parts of yeah. Italy. And they and he also has because he has the power to excommunicate and also make people bishops and cardinals and things like that. He has a lot of church money which comes in from all over mm-hmm. that he can hand out to people. So he has a good amount of power, but it's a bit weird in that he's not really a king because he's not aristocratic. And he cannot do the thing that is the standard of European power brokerage, which is marrying your children off to people. Yeah. Until somebody (laughs) tries to change that. (laughs) But so this is how the Borgia family come to Italy is through exclusively through the just good negotiating power of Alphonse. Alphonse brings with from... Spain brings with him a load of his family and friends and starts kind of filling the papal palace basically with people that are members of his family. Most Which he was not unique in. Like this no. is this is how it works. It's completely normal, but because pretty much every previous pope had been Italian. They were just coming from other places in Italy and that was fine. And Mm -hmm. a lot of them had been Italian nobles. So it's fine. That's like not upsetting the the rocket. Not upsetting the rocket, not upsetting the apple cart too much. (laughs) Don't know where rocket came from. Ignore that. (laughs) Uh, Not upsetting the apple cart too much. 
this is like normal but he's spanish he is not from the nobility he speaks catalan which is considered to be borderline barbaric <laughs> and now he's bringing over spanish people and the italians seem to view spain like it is some like it, it's it's spain it is becoming the, one of the most powerful empires in the world almost like um, and yet it, italy views it as though they are like dirt on their shoe it's really bizarre it also seems to be the way they view france when the french yeah. come in later they're all they are regarded as dirty savages even yeah. though again france is like possibly the most powerful kingdom in europe at this time yeah, they do not say what they think of the English at any point. I assume they just think that the English, like, no, there's no English history in this. This is the period of, like, the Wars of the Roses and then Henry VII and kind of ends up when Henry VIII has just taken the throne. And so I assume that they think the English are just bog people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're irrelevant because they're just engaged in petty civil wars and no one cares. Unlike the Italians who do nothing but petty civil war. <laughs> but they <laughs> but they're do doing it with Italy, good art. So you understand the yeah. difference. <laughs> so it's better. <laughs> yeah. Right. So one of the people that Alphonse brings over, he calls himself Calixtus III. That's his Pope name. So it's mm-hmm. an all right Pope name. It's pretty good, actually. I'm a fan. Yeah. He does not seem to have had any children of his own. So he brings over his nephews. One of them dies pretty young. But the other is Rodrigo Borgia. Mm-hmm. who is the first big famous Borgia. This is Daddy Borgia, <laughs> which is what I'm going to call him. He, as well as he has his Rodrigo, we're going to call him for a while, and then his name cha- changes to Alexander when he becomes also the Pope. Yeah, a more boring Pope name than Calixtus. It is a much more opinion. boring Pope name, much, much more. He's a sixth Alexander, which is just, I mean, yeah, pick a new name. Yeah, <laughs> should have just gone with Daddy. Yeah, he could have gone with Daddy Borgia, which is one of the things he's very famous for. (laughs) He is where the Borgia fun really starts because he is basically, he's made a cardinal by Uncle Pope Calixtus. Mm -hmm. He then also gathers like eight bishoprics, which is impressive, and a load of other jobs, um, manages through all of these to make himself very, very, very conspicuously rich. Mm-hmm. and becomes very powerful as a result within the Council of the Cardinals. At the time when he is a cardinal, there are 24, which is not very many, mm-hmm. and they're 90% Italian. He's like one of three non-Italian cardinals, and he's bootling about and becoming incredibly rich and does pretty well. Yeah, he manages to, under his uncle, he becomes the vice-chancellor, mm-hmm. and he manages to hold on to that position through all of the subsequent popes like he manages to make all of them think that he is loyal to them basically which you know fair enough he seems to be loyal to them and he seems to be highly competent as well you know like yeah yeah so you can't really argue with it you cannot argue with him as a as a cardinal so he becomes pope when he's in his 60s his early 60s and he spends pretty much his entire life before that being a cardinal (laughs) and doing well at it he is cardinal under like eight popes something like that six popes and he is you know he's good at being a cardinal (laughs) like nobody has anything really bad to say about him except pope Pius ii who is the second pope that he serves under so and pope Pius ii writes like what is considered to be the first evidence 
of his his monstrous behavior, the behavior <laughs> that will will eventually make him famous. And it's so funny how mad Pope Pius is about what happens. <laughs> He writes this letter and he says, We have learned three days ago that a considerable number of women adorned with worldly vanity were assembled in our gardens and that you, in contempt of your dignity and position, remained with them for five hours during the <laughs> afternoon. It really is shocking. There were immodest dances and seductions of love beyond bounds. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh, and that's about it. Dancing <laughs> and possible yeah. shagging. Yeah. Yes. I would be willing to say probable shagging. I'm willing to accept probable shagging. And honestly, given how many children Alex he has, <laughs> I'd say almost certain shagging. Yeah. But he, he paid compliments to women. He gave them wine mm-hmm. and he wouldn't let their husbands into the party. <laughs> But that is like the only real evidence that that he was up to anything nefarious. And I'm pretty sure that all of the cardinals were doing this kind of thing. Yeah. Or it was a sexy a time to be high up in the Catholic Church. Yeah, it is not unusual for cardinals to have children, which it is pretty surprising, Cena, is it is it was illegal for anyone in the Catholic priesthood to have sex. Like priestly celibacy mm-hmm. has been canon law since the eleventh century. Yeah. So it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a good 400 years that they've not been allowed to be shagging. But unfortunately, a lot of them do. <laughs> there is a lot of kind of general cardinal behavior. However, when he's about 60, he eventually manages to become the Pope. In 1492, he is elected uh, Pope Alexander VI, and he thus becomes the second Spanish Pope. And People are immediately furious about it. They claim that he openly bought the votes of his rivals. There are stories that go around. One story says that he literally sent a cart filled with silver over to another cardinal in the middle of the night in order to buy (laughs) the votes that he had in his little voting block. Another, and this is probably my favourite, is that after his election, Rodrigo took all of the money to pay the bribes that he had promised everyone out of the Spinici bank in Rome and the bank nearly collapsed. Uh, <laughs> Under the weight of the bribes, it was forced yes, to cash out for him to pay. so much money came out that it basically crippled the bank, which is funny. It's very funny. And this is like his immediate thing is that he is considered to be unsuitable and to be corrupt and to be literally buying the papacy. Which again was not unique to him. It doesn't become unique. I think he is the first one who is accused of actually like paying for it. (laughs) Right. But it is a political position. And he then goes on really to change what the papacy is. So up until this point, the popes that he has worked under have been focused pretty much entirely on just their power extending to religious matters and their army, which they have, being mostly focused on crusading. Mm -hmm. So they have been arguing, constantly fighting with the Ottoman Empire and kind of every so often trying to kind of half-heartedly retake Jerusalem again. And so that has been what he has watched popes doing and negotiating with the Ottoman sultans and have not really been that invested in European politics unless it was for getting support for crusades and things. Yeah. What Rodrigo would like to do is change that. He would very much like the papacy to be a European power 
seems like he would quite like to unify Italy under his own power and have Italy be a full papal state. And he would like to set up the papacy as a dynasty, or at least use the papacy as a starting off point for starting a Borgia dynasty that is aristocratic and a very and a part of the European royal statehood situation. Mm-hmm. And he starts that firstly by making loads and loads of Spanish people cardinals, which enormously upsets everybody (laughs) in Italy. So he increases the number of cardinals to 45, and only 60% of those are Italian. And this is considered to be disgusting (laughs) by Italians, like by Italian nobility, who have Mm. considered the papal states to be like a, a place where they can rule. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, the Spanish are taking over. The other thing he does, which is impressive for a pope, is have nine children. Yeah, which is a lot. Nine nine acknowledged children. But then he also seems to have been quite dedicated to his family. So he was he probably he may not have had unacknowledged children. He he seems to have acknowledged or he certainly acknowledged a lot of them. Yeah. The way that a pope acknowledges, do you know how a pope acknowledges a I I know that he had uh he had them all declared legitimate by the previous Pope Sixtus. Yeah. yeah. He had papal bulls issued by popes. So literally a papal bull is like when you talk about papal infallibility, you're talking about papal bulls. So mm-hmm. the papal infallibility only means when they write down something and make a statement, it is infallible. Yeah, <laughs> and so they, he, they decide what truth is by writing it on a piece of paper. Exactly, and that is you know like a pope can say wrong things in general conversation, but when they are infallible, it is because of a papal. It is in a papal bull. Like when mm-hmm. they have decided to do it, that is an infallible thing. Uh, that is what he had. That's how he has his children legitimate. And that they are not just his his illegitimate children or like kids that are running around with his DNA. They are legally his children and can inherit from him mm-hmm. <laughs> by papal bull, which <laughs> boggles people. Like they not he's not supposed to have children. <laughs> not supposed to have sex. He's not supposed to have sex at all. He's definitely not supposed to have children. He's definitely definitely not supposed to have legitimate children. He's definitely not supposed to openly keep mistresses and have them live with him at the Vatican. <laughs> no, especially not when they are 16 years old and married to somebody else, yep. which is a thing he does. <laughs> <laughs> so he has two long-term mistresses and one of whom is a literal teenager. She's called Julia the Beautiful, which is nice. Mm. Yeah, so, so he does that. And this also... It just absolutely blows people's minds, which is fair. And then he starts treating the Catholic hierarchy of like bishoprics and uh, like being a member of the Council of Cardinals as though it were a court and as though he were a king who could give out positions mm. by giving loads of them to his children. Yeah. He moves most of them into the papal palace. He also decorates the papal palace very luxuriously. Like his apartments are covered in the Borgia coat of arms mm-hmm. and uh, they're all kind of gold and sparkly and gems. They are as a family because they're kind of nouveau riche, which the French find very funny. They have a tendency to put gems and gold on everything. Mm-hmm. It's very like Trump's golden toilet situation. <laughs> So they like really magnificently paint up and then he moves his entire family in and his mistresses and all of his children and starts giving them jobs. 
And he particularly gives jobs to sons Juan Mm -hmm. and Cesare, which is spelt Caesar, but pronounced Cesare. Sure. They are his like favorite sons. There's one called mm-hmm. Joffrey as well, who is kind of a favorite for a while, and then he sends him back to Spain. Because uh, yeah, he just kind of is a bit useless. <laughs> he's just a bit useless. He's very young. He, yeah. like, he's just he's not that much fun to be around. But Juan, uh, Cesare, and then Lucretia, who is his favorite of his like four daughters, five mm-hmm. daughters. His children are Pierre, Luis, Geronima, great name. Geronima. Great name. Elizabeth, Cesare, Joan, Lucrezia, Joffrey, Joan the <laughs> Second. Just ran out of girls' names. <laughs> and Roderick. Mm-hmm. But only three are important. Juan is killed. He is murdered. Mm-hmm. Cesare is his kind of favourite right up until the point when he pisses him off and then he becomes his sec- least favourite. But by that time, Cesare has an army, so it's too late. It's also a classic. Uh, his favourite children are the children of his favourite mistress mm-hmm. his his older children were were by another woman and then he had his long-term mistress uh Vinoza di Cachanel who yep. um, had all his favorite children basically were yes were hers and she is scandalous because she had been married like three times before mm. in a classic piece of misogyny the fact that she wasn't a virgin when she started having sex <laughs> with the pope was a problem <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, yes so those children are are his favorites he thinks they're brilliant and he he basically starts grooming cesare to be his successor in the papacy ideally he's going to send juan off to go marry ideally some kind of princess um, and lucrezia is going to marry somebody who has a lot of power and then he's going to spread his influence all over and it's going to be brilliant that Mm -hmm. seems to be his plan because that is what he does (laughs) he has lucrezia married off by the time she's 13 Mm -hmm. to a a guy who is a very important member of another family in italy who is called giovanni sforza so the sforza family are very very powerful family they're kind of when you talk about big Italian families at this point, you talk about the Medici, the Borgia, and then the Sforza family. Mm-mm. No one yet has made a TV show about the Sforza family, which is disappointing. Interesting. Yeah. Get on that. There's loads of them. And at one point, <laughs> Caterina Sforza, who is like a cousin of Giovanni, tries to murder Pope Alexander VI, Rodrigo, by sending him a bit of rolled up parchment that had either been robbed on a plague victim or robbed with poison yeah, <laughs> in pretty, an attempt to kill him. badass way to kill a pope, to be fair. It is a badass way to kill a pope. And I feel like there's a lot more stories there. They're just not, mm. you know, where are they? I'm also going to say that the other thing that he did, because I think it is important, like his real big impact on the world. Are you going to talk about Brazil? Yes. This blew my mind. (laughs) His main impact on the world is that he is the Pope, which is just in 1493, who issued the papal bull, which is titled, among other things, which granted Ferdinand and Isabella the right to exploit the whole of South America. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he gave Portugal, Africa and Spain, South America. Yep. Because they were having, at the time, as soon as Christopher Columbus like wrote a letter home and said, hey, I found the Indies, Spain and Portugal both sent out 
tons of boats very very fast to get there started having an argument about who could exploit it Mm -hmm. and Alexander VI said, Spain can have this one because it was them that paid for the thing. You can have Africa and said that it was vitally important that uh, the Catholic faith and the Catholic religion be exalted and be everywhere increased and spread, that the health of souls be cared for and that these barbarous nations be overthrown and brought to faith itself. Thus, he wrote the theological and legal basis for the colonization of the new world. So thanks. <laughs> but what he did was basically designate those territories that Spain was allowed to have and then Portugal mm-hmm. was allowed to have by drawing a big line, not realizing mm-hmm. that the actual geography of South America meant that he gave a chunk of it to Portugal. Um, and that's why yeah. Brazil. Yeah. And this is still on like because you can't really repeal a papal bull, or you can, but it's hard. This is still technically Catholic law. (laughs) And every so often, indigenous peoples in the Americas attempt to have this like repealed, basically, and be like, can we stop saying that barbarous nations should be overthrown and brought to the faith itself? (laughs) And the Vatican goes, "Eh, maybe we just won't bring it up. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Cool. So that's fun. Yes. So Rodrigo slash Alexander is a massive shagger, is filling the house with his children um, and his mistresses, and is also low-key a bit of a prick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> most, well, actually, I don't. He's not any more of a prick than anyone else, really. Yeah, he was a, a, a low-key tyrannical ruler, but he did also like do a lot of infrastructural improvements to the city he he modernized yeah. a lot of the uh, plumbing and you know the street the sewers and those sorts of things um, which is nice yeah and he he kind of makes rome like starts to make rome what it is today like building these big buildings making things beautiful but the thing that really makes him unpopular other than being Catalan and speaking in Catalan and like using his children as as political pawns is that he decides to set himself up as a political power. The rest of Italy and large chunks of the rest of Europe consider him to be an upstart with ideas above his station. He considers himself to be attempting to unify Italy under one banner. And he starts doing things like doing deals with the King of France and doing other deals with the King of Naples and then also doing things with the Duke of Milan. And a lot of the books that I read were backstabby, like gossipy stuff about like, oh, and then he totally promised the King of France that he wouldn't invade Naples and then he invaded Naples and then he entirely... And just like this, the fact that he acts like he is a royal (laughs) with a state and is constantly like doing deals with people in order to gain territory and then marrying a daughter off in order to gain some more territory and then annulling that marriage when it isn't very useful anymore. He does issue a paper ball that his daughter is virgin Mm -hmm. and forces her husband, who's so-called Alfonso, to sign a bit of paper that says that she is a virgin because he is impotent. (laughs) Even though he had fathered children with his previous wife. He had fathered children with his previous wife because he is like 60 and he's Mm. married to Lucrezia when she is 13. He forces her husband to sign this. It is from that guy that a lot of the rumours that um, Lucrezia and Cesare were incestuous come about. Mm -hmm. So decide for yourself whether you want to believe him. (laughs) 
the man who was forced by the Pope to publicly say that he couldn't shag. <laughs> the Pope. <laughs> and just does a lot of like double dealing around Italy and Europe, basically. Italy, France, Spain, like Aragon, and all of these like little city states that are constantly sniping each other and trying to invade each other and trying to take each other over and blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff means that people think he is a terrible upstart with with ideas that are too big for his boots. Yeah. And also upsets everybody because it does technically tend to go back on a lot of deals that he makes. Yeah, the the book I was reading, every time he makes a deal, everyone knew that they couldn't trust him, but they made this deal anyway. <laughs> yeah. So they thought they would get something out of it. Yeah. And it's not like nobody else is doing this, but still. Yeah. He also has a real lack of regard for the spiritual elements of being the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he genuinely does not seem to give a fuck about, like, the truth of things, like whether his daughter is a virgin or, like, the fact that papal celibacy is supposed to be a thing. Or, like, he completely seems to view it through entirely entirely mercenary eyes basically it is just a a way to like okay so i I have to do a paper ball or i'll do a paper ball like he is just interested in having power and using it to extend his which is you know not ideal if you're the head of the catholic church i guess (laughs) and if you are a person who does take that very seriously then it is a real problem. Like if you are somebody who cares very much about celibacy and about spirituality and about the idea of all of these very sacred ancient rituals of St. Peter being defiled, which some people are, <laughs> then then it comes across very badly. And he does have one guy basically tries to start a little Catholic rebellion against him and goes so far as to give like speeches in St. Peter's about how the Pope is debasing good, honest Catholicism mm-hmm. and is like defiling the purity of the ancient rites and these things that he genuinely believes in. He has him burnt at the stake, which is, <laughs> in fairness, not great. Uh, it's not great, but that guy did feel like a real fun sponge. I mean, he's a fun sponge, but I do empathize with the position of like, I thought we believed in this. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do understand. Uh... And this is the point at which like, you know, the Reformation is just starting to emerge and people, this is why people start talking about the corruption of the church. <laughs> <laughs> it's really ironic when you, when your understanding of the Reformation is sort of Anglo-centric and you associate it with Henry VIII. It's really ironic that it came into being because uh, of his corruption and immorality and wanting to get a divorce when just a bit previously the Pope had been flinging around divorces left, right and centre as long as they suited him politically. Yes. There really is. uh, No one has a leg to stand on (laughs) in this situation. And he also does do a fair whack, again, as the Pope, a fair whack of like selling off what's called simony. Like he will get people to pay him so they can be a bishop or get people to pay him so that they can be a cardinal Mm. and like uses his ability to hand out, you know, forgiveness. (laughs) And so it is, you know, this is the the beginning of why people start really, really talking about uh, corruption within the church. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He was literally charging people to buy a few years of eternal torment off their dead friends and family. Like you could give him money and he would say like, oh yeah, well, this person's going to be 
in it's hell fine for now. a little less, less time. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. yeah. So not not amazing. <laughs> not great. No. But <laughs> also a lot Cesare is the real bastard. Like, I would say that Rodrigo Alexander is massively corrupt and astonishing shagger does not in any way take Catholicism seriously <laughs> and uses it entirely as a tool for his own power, is difficult, certainly, <laughs> to be around, but also seems to be bog-standard kind of power-hungry bastard. Like, yeah. it's, there's nothing about him that is terrible that yeah. I think. He gets kind of blamed for two poisonings, neither of which I would suggest happened. <laughs> one is the half-brother of Bayezid II, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, whose name is Chem. He was being held hostage by Charles VIII in mm -hmm. France, having been captured. He was held hostage for 13 years and then he died in his sleep. And Alexander happened to be at the court at the time and people kind of went around telling everybody that he had murdered him in order to stop Charles VIII from doing a crusade. Mm -hmm. Because if he didn't have the half-brother as a hostage, yeah. then he would be much more open to attack from Which the Ottoman Empire. was a motivation that was based in spite because Charles had just marched his army straight through Rome. Yes, and Charles Langson did not get on at all. <laughs> and Charles thought that he had attempted to like be a scourge of God and like cleanse Rome of Alexander slash Rodrigo. Mm -hmm. So not a great relationship, but <laughs> I don't know if died in his sleep in after thirteen years of captivity is a particularly strong like argument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other is a guy called Cardinal Giovanni Michiel, mm -hmm. who threw up for two days and had vomiting and diarrhea and then died. And the Viennese, one of the ambassadors to the Vatican, said that uh, as soon as Alexander heard that Cardinal was dead, he sent people to just strip it of all of its valuables, basically. And as a result, people thought that he had poisoned him. Sure. No evidence as to how he poisoned him. And nobody seems that interested in how, just he definitely <laughs> did. There's a couple of beating to deaths, mm -hmm. one of which is his own son. And so people generally consider it to be Cesare who did that. And one of which is the groom of the household of his son's wife. And this is a complicated situation <laughs> that occurs about halfway through his reign. So... Lucrezia is on her second marriage. She's about 16. Mm -hmm. And her husband, like, disappears, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, he just leaves the city and abandons her. She is sent off to a nunnery, basically, to get her out of the way because she was then found to be sleeping with her father's chamberlain. Mm -hmm. So he's furious that she is sleeping with the chamberlain. Her husband has left, so he can't do anything with that. Who knows where the husband's gone? So she gets sent off to a nunnery. The rumours spread that she had a child while she was in that nunnery that was a stillbirth. However, a couple of years later, a child appears in the Borgia family who's called like the Roman child mm -hmm. and then later called Giovanni who Alexander initiates a papal bull which says that the child is Cesare's, mm -hmm. then recants that and a couple of years afterwards issues another one which says that actually this child is his. Right, yeah. 
because this is weird um, and he can't, no one seemed to be, no one knows really who this child is, the story spreads that either Lucrezia was pregnant by the Chamberlain, the Chamberlain was murdered and she had the baby in the nunnery and this is the baby, or mm-hmm. she was pregnant by Alexander because they were having an incestuous affair. Right. Because obviously. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is complicated and weird and... This is, and the Chamberlain does turn up dead. So she's definitely having sex with him. Whether this child is hers is unclear, but that is one of the place, like basically as soon as they do anything at all, because they are quite close, everybody's just like, oh yeah, the worst possible explanation is the one that I have come up with. The Pope did a murder and shagged his daughter. (laughs) Yeah, obviously. No one actually knows who this child was or who the father was or who the mother was. It might have been Lucrezia's by the Chamberlain. I'm pretty sure they weren't shagging each other. I mean, who knows? I hope she got at least like a fair bit of hers, you know? (laughs) Oh, she definitely shagged like a lot, (laughs) but like a normal amount. Yeah. There is a lot of uh, like, so the Paul Strahan book that I read was particularly good at like innuendo for this. Alexandra Dumas didn't even do an innuendo, but a lot of them are like, (laughs) they were too close as father and daughter, and also they were too close as brother and sister. So Cesare and Lucrezia are too close when they're young. They spend too much time together and they seem to hang out. Also, they talk Catalan to each other. So the three of them speak exclusively in Catalan. So nobody knows what they're saying. Also, one of the Spanish things they do is they are much more physically affectionate than most of their... uh, Italian people around them. Mm. Yes. So, which freaks people out. And so they just assume that they're saying something terrible. But I could not find anything that was actual evidence of them shagging. The closest thing that I could find of inappropriate behavior was in the Paul Strachan book where he describes uh, Alexander and Lucrezia watching some stallions being let loose in a field of mares in heat and then Mm -hmm. watching the stallions fight over the mares. Sure. And this is presented by a lot of the books as them having like a total lack of shame around sex and finding sex really funny and public and something that you can totally do and talk about with your dad. But it seems to me that they are actually finding the fighting to be funny. Yeah, yeah. Because a thing that they really like, like they bring a lot of bullfighting to Italy. Like they have bullfights in St. Peter's and Cesare does bullfighting himself and kills like several bulls in public. And this kind of cruelty for sport seems to be something that they really enjoy. Sure. Also, like if you're around a lot of animals, if you're if you're around horses a lot, you see them have sex. Yeah, (laughs) I don't I don't necessarily buy that people in general would would find it like morally objectionable to have seen animals mating. No. And also, I don't think that they necessarily would have thought that it was the most titillating thing they'd ever seen. No. So I'm pretty sure that if that happened and they watched some stallions fighting, then it was the fighting that they enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> and the mares were just there to make them fight. And that that's like that's it. They 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 talk to each other in Catalan. They seem to be close and they like kiss each other in public in a kind of Spanish fashion. Is yeah. not like I'm gonna need more than that, is what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 Basically Rodrigo is bog standard bastard king essentially it just that he happens to be the pope 
and that's a problem. There is also a rumor that spreads which I think is the kind of final nail in the coffin for a lot of people in medieval Europe, which is that he is, for a while at least, nice to Jews, Mm -hmm. or at least welcoming to Jews, because there are lots of Jews who are being driven out of Spain. Which we have talked about as well on our episode about the Spanish Inquisition. Exactly. uh, When after Spain was finally sort of united under a European dynasty, all of the Muslims and Jews were driven out of the country unless they converted and then if they converted they were subjected to inquisitions to prove their their you know loyalty to Catholicism basically exactly Mm. and so lots of them are driven out lots of them turn up in Italy in Rome and in the papal states Alexander allows them to enter allows Jews to practice Judaism and gives them rights Mm -hmm. of citizenship which is considered by a lot of Catholics to be very bad because this is medieval Europe and people are profoundly anti-Semitic. As a result of this just lack of hostility, basically, it's not like he's converting to Judaism or anything, he's not doing anything suspicious, like bad, he's not doing anything. What he seems to be doing, at least the account that I read, is is like using their skills and their money to enrich himself and Rome. And that then is annoying to everyone who isn't benefiting from their skills and money. And <laughs> yeah. it's the, it is the classic thing. It's the classic anti-Semitism that happens time and time again, right? Where Jewish people are barred from lots of professions. They become really good at the ones they're allowed to do and dominate them. Like has happened with money lending, has happened with fashion in New York. And then everyone loses their minds over the fact that they've been successful because... Of anti-Semitism, basically. And then they declare that they are being somehow oppressed by the Jews who have been oppressed. Yeah. So because of this, people start spreading rumours that the Borgia family were conversos or Moranos, who are a, a conspiracy theory about Jews who had been forcibly converted to Catholicism and continue to practice Judaism. Yeah. Which, as a result, people said that Alexander was not really a Catholic, which in fairness, he was not a great one, <laughs> but spread anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about yeah. him. Including that when they, when the family was speaking Catalan, they were actually speaking Hebrew. Yeah. That was a piece of evidence as well. Which is, well, yeah. not evidence, but, you know, lies. Yeah, which is whenever you get something like this and people spreading theories, it's astonishing how quickly people can come to anti-Semitism. <laughs> it really is wild. And... It never, never dies. No. <sighs> Lucrezia, who I'm going to talk about briefly, because Lucrezia, I think, is the the most maligned and for the most nonsense reasons, in that there are no reasons. She just happens to be the illegitimate daughter of the Pope, who he <laughs> likes. She does nothing wrong, ever. <laughs> like, she is... Fine. Like she's married when she's a child. She's engaged to two people before she is like 10. Eventually she marries, she's married off to a much, much, much older man, Giovanni Schwarzer, who she is then made to divorce. He then marries her off to another man called Alfonso, the Duke of Biscagali, mm-hmm. and has children by him. He abandons her, but eventually comes back and they have a pretty happy 
like marriage. She is devoted to him. She loves him. She they have children together. Um, that child is christened a grandson of the Pope in St. Peter's in a public ceremony where all the ambassadors are there and all the cardinals, mm-hmm. which is not her fault, but blows people's minds for fairly obvious <laughs> reasons. Because the Pope shouldn't have a grandchild. The Pope is not supposed to have a grandchild. <laughs> <laughs> The one thing you're not supposed to do in St. Peter's, I would say, is a christening, but sure. (laughs) She then has like a very happy marriage with Alfonso. They're very loving. She kind of tends him through illness. He is murdered by the manservant of Cesare, like one of his servants, like main servants. Like literally, this guy breaks into their bedroom and stabs him to death. Which is pretty bad. That's pretty bad. But it's not Lucrezia's fault. And she is distraught. Like when this happens, when her husband is murdered, probably by her brother or at least by a member of her brother's household, she is absolutely heartbroken. And she then sticks around the papal palace with her father. She becomes kind of an advisor to him. Mm-hmm. And she is, whenever he leaves Rome, she, he leaves Lucrezia in charge basically as his a kind of papal regent. <laughs> Again, unpopular with men who are in a church which specifically says that women cannot be in charge of things. <laughs> but during that time, she uh, negotiates a third marriage with a Duke of Ferrara, goes off in a huge procession and marries this Duke and basically just leaves a good impression on basically everybody. Like all of the uh, people who write about her when she is traveling to Ferreira and then when she is there, essentially all just say that she's very nice and she's cultured Uh and she's polite. Delightfully, she seems to have invented the excuse that she's washing her hair when she doesn't want to go to a party. What an icon. Yeah. So it's like she washes her hair a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But she... She has a kind of rivalry with her sister-in-law. Um, her sister-in-law really doesn't like her because she considers her to be a, a kind of Spanish peasant who is punching above her weight and she's really cross that she is going to be a duchess. <laughs> and so she has loads of spies in her household, but they can't really come up with anything. The worst they seem to be come up against is when she gets she gets really, really ill at one point and Cesare comes to visit her and they speak in Catalan and everyone's like, oh my God. <laughs> But that, like, there's no murders. There's no, like, she kind of just gets blowback from her brother and her father. (laughs) She just, she has a couple of affairs. She has a nice affair with a poet and another one with a guy who is considered to be, like, the Lord Flashheart of medieval Italy, Renaissance Italy, (laughs) called Francesco Gonzaga. But otherwise, she's just lives a life. Like, I feel like it is. What she did wrong was have a little bit of political power. That's literally all it is. What happens when a woman has a little bit of political power is everyone loses their fucking minds. And also nobody likes her dad or her brother. Her brother, we will come to in a wee second, he is the dirt worst. (laughs) So, I mean, but she basically just gets pure blowback off of that. (laughs) Like nothing... She's not there. I couldn't find a single person that she is accused of killing. Mm-hmm. She is given political power. She's made the uh, governor of Spolito at one point for six months and does that nicely, like, does that fine. She uh, is a good duchess. She seems to run the Vatican while her dad's away. <laughs> 
And like, there's there's no story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So justice for Lucrezia Borgia, she is fine. However, most of, I think, the problems with the Borgia family come from Cesare, who is a dickhead. (laughs) Cesare is the one who is referenced heavily in Machiavelli's The Prince. Mm -hmm. He's called the Duke or the Young Duke in that and is considered to be like the prototype for that, for what um, Machiavelli is recommending in a lot of it. The idea that you should be feared, the idea that um, you can do whatever you like as long as you're willing to kill anybody who opposes you, and a lot of the kind of very amoral, power-grabby behaviour that is recommended by Machiavelli. He has a kind of small career as a cardinal when he is young. He becomes a cardinal very, very young. There is a very famous story about him during that time as filling a courtyard with prisoners and then using him as target practice with his crossbow. Uh Uh-huh. Not great. Yeah, which is pretty nasty. He also is really into bullfighting and loves bullfighting, like Mm -hmm. actually being a bullfighter, which people don't like at all. They, um, he does public bullfighting and this is considered to be, um, monstrous Spanish nightmare behavior. (laughs) Which, fair, I don't want to see a bullfight either. I definitely yeah, don't no, want to no, see no, a cardinal no. doing a bullfight. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, so that is very bad. Um, he is then, his father um, has a papal bull passed in which he is like removed from being a cardinal after Juan is murdered. People think that Cesare murdered Juan, his brother, because they were shagging the same woman, basically. Um, right. There's a lot of shag. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like Daddy Borgia believed that he'd done it because by all no. accounts he was really, really carp about Juan's murder and he was. Might um, not he have loved forgiven that. Child. that. <laughs> yeah. Um and he was devastated. Everybody was very upset, but um apparently Cesare was not. Um uh, but the very least people kind of generally believed that that had happened. Um mm. rather whether he actually did or not kind of becomes irrelevant at a certain point. Um, yeah. Much as like the whether they actually poisoned anyone ever becomes kind of irrelevant because it just is such a strong part <laughs> of the myth. Yeah, but he it is believed about him because after he stops being a cardinal, he's married off to a sister of the king of Navarre. He becomes a like member of the European aristocracy. He's then given an army. Um, the King of France, who is now Louis the Twelfth, um, mm-hmm. and given a lot of money by his father Alexander the Sixth, uh, and he is sent off around Italy to basically invade and brutalize a load of city states. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, he goes around. He sets invades what's called Romagna, like this kind of part of central Italy, several times. He invades a load of different towns and cities. He um, Capua is one which he commits like a real massacre. He kills like six thousand people, um, and then locks up the queen uh, or the 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 lady and rapes a load of people. Mm-hmm. He sacks Abino. He invades Abino and Caramino. He just basically goes around attempting to unify Italy under his power, basically. Yeah. With the blessing of the Pope and also of the King of France, he does this in luxurious fashion and with a kind of a lot of what might be considered gratuitous violence. (laughs) 
I mean, it is quite violent to sack a, a city. Yes, and he it's does that a good do couple of times. Mm. He also has syphilis, possibly. One person says he has leprosy, which he definitely didn't. <laughs> but he possibly had syphilis. As an aside, do you know what I learned about a theory, one theory of how syphilis, like why syphilis became a big problem in this period? Well, what I read was that it was when Charles, uh, whatever, of France, sort of came came crushing through um, Italy. He, once he got to Naples, all of his soldiers started just raping everyone. And uh, that it spread wildly from there outwards which is why the italians called it the french disease and the french called it the naples disease (laughs) yes but the way that it very strongly believed at the time and there are still elements of people who believe it now like scientists is that syphilis did not exist in europe prior to the discovery to the discovery of the americas yes Mm. and that the all of the sailors and people who went over and raped so many women in the Americas uh, brought it back to Europe and then spread it around. And that is why, or that is a theory of why it then becomes a real serious problem and why it starts being described in medical texts because it's not described in any medical texts. Before then. That's interesting because I've also heard that the reason that smallpox was such a problem after the discovery of the Americas in the Americas is because prior to Christopher Columbus landing there there hadn't been any communicable diseases. So no one knew how to deal with a contagious disease because they didn't know they were possible. So all of their responses to illness actually spread it around because you would gather around a sick person to take care of them. Well, as long as you're not shagging them. As long as you're not shagging, yeah. Mm. Um, But yeah, but that was a theory for a very long Mm. time um, as to why it was um, and why everybody seems to have syphilis right now. But yeah. So he may have had syphilis. He certainly gets ill quite a lot with various things, and he's a real shagger, much like which may his also father, have been like malaria, right? Because malaria was a massive problem initially at this time as well. Yes, the thing with malaria is it doesn't give you the skin, like, skin issues. Yeah. That he's he, there's a long time where he wears a mask, like he dresses. It doesn't help his reputation, or possibly he deliberately gives himself a reputation by wearing a lot of black velvet and a black face mask when he is in Rome. Sure which is theorised that he might be covering up his facial kind of scarring, but uh, also might have just been adding to his mystique. But yeah, he is. he does all of these kind of terrible things all over Italy and is doing things that the Pope is really not supposed to be doing. Like the papal armies are not supposed to be invading <laughs> other city-states. Like they're supposed to fight infidels, not other Catholics and so this is like just really baffling and quite horrifying to everybody in Italy so you can see why they didn't love him he also liked to party and the story that is very famous about him occurs in 1501 when he is kind of in his early 20s mid 20s and is written by the master of ceremonies at the papal palace. So in the Vatican, the master of ceremonies who's like in charge of all of the stuff who's called Bouchard, who wrote his diaries with the caveat that he absolutely fucking despises the Borgias. Um, <laughs> he hates Alexander and he hates Cesare. And all of his diaries are pretty much about how much he hates them. He describes a Sunday evening meal that occurred in the Apostolic Palace that Cesare gave, in which 50 decent prostitutes arrived, who, after the meal, danced with servants, fully dressed and then naked. 
chestnuts were strewn about, which the prostitutes, naked and on their hands and knees, had to pick up with their vaginas. <laughs> the Pope, Don Cesare, and Donna Lucrezia were all present to watch. Finally, prizes were offered to those men who fucked these prostitutes the greatest number of times. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. It's a, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. So that is <laughs> probably one of the most famous stories about them. And there's this, like, this story which gives rise to a lot of other things that are said about them. And is, yeah, there's just a lot happening there. Yeah. In, in Bouchard is allegedly an eyewitness to this, which I think implicates him as much as anything else. Yeah. But, yeah. He just hung out. I was like, I'm yeah. going to tell everyone about this. I'm going to write this down. <laughs> <laughs> he publishes these under the next Pope, who is Julius, who is a huge enemy of all of them and considers them all to be the dirt worst people. So uh, take that as you will. But yeah, so that is a thing that is said about Cesare. Uh, <laughs> uh, he ends up, after doing a lot of like violent invasions of places and he's kind of generally considered to be horribly arrogant and really reckless and overconfident and to have little to no respect for anybody else at all really and he is eventually arrested by the king of naples after so um alexander the sixth dies uh he dies (laughs) this is really fun he dies in the third uh poisoning scandal that happens which is there is a party at a cardinal's house cardinal de, this is such a good name cardinal de cornetto uh-huh very good uh-huh after which um alexander and cesare become very very ill mm-hmm. they are very unwell for several days and the story is told that they had attempted to poison all po- they had attempted to poison cardinal de cornetto uh-huh. by putting poison in his wine but they had accidentally drunk the wine themselves that seems far-fetched it seems very far <laughs> generally it seems people now think from the symptoms that are described by the kind of first hand sources that they actually were bitten by mosquitoes and had malaria yes had a very nasty form of malaria but this is what kills alexander this this party and cesare also becomes very very ill mm-hmm. this happens what year does this happen? But, but, but this happens in 1503. So after 1503, um, Cesare basically loses his access to power. He no longer is really has a position. He mm. doesn't have any titles particularly. He has an army which comes from the French who he's kind of fallen out with quite badly. And the new Pope, Julius, absolutely is not giving him anything ever. That seems fair. Yes. And so he ends up being arrested by the uh, King of Naples. He is imprisoned and threatened with trial by the Neapolitan authorities for the murder of his brother and also for his brother-in-law. He manages to escape and runs to Spain, runs to Navarre, where he somehow is made like a viceroy of the army because there is a massive civil war happening in Navarre at the time. Mm-hmm. So he gets to be back in the army seat, at which point in 1507 he is ambushed by just sort of random 
bandits on the other side of the war, random soldiers, and is stabbed uh-huh. to death on a side of a mountain. Sure. Kind of anticlimactic. You really want him to have been murdered by a long-term enemy. He should have been murdered by a long-term enemy, but it's like, really, because this is um, this is exactly what Alexander is trying to prevent from happening, which is that he wants his children to be married and off to people who are members of the nobility and to have titles. Yeah. And a thing that Machiavelli says about Cesare is that um, he doesn't have any titles. He doesn't have a state, really. He is married to somebody, but he doesn't have any access to her or her father's or her brother's power Mm. and so all he has is the papal power and so he says the duke is not to be measured like other lords who have only their titles in respect to his state one must think of him as a new power in italy but in the he ends up with none of that because basically alexander's desire to set them up and to insert them into the aristocracy fails essentially (laughs) and so he ends up with nothing and um and yeah just gets stabbed to death on the side of a of a mountain and as soon as they're both dead lucrezia just goes on living her life has four children four more children she has two children with her second husband and four children with her third husband she has some nice affairs she writes love letters uh-huh. she sponsors artists she yeah. is having a nice time in ferrera and then 1519 when she is just 34 years old she dies of natural causes yeah she did nothing wrong yeah and thus thus ends the the Borgia dynasty basically like they don't they kind of people continue around they do have another another pope much later on one of the later popes uh, who is a descendant kind of 50 years later of the Borgias who's Pope Innocent the Tenth mm-hmm. is yeah is a descendant of hers but otherwise they just kind of become an average an average family who don't don't yeah. shake things up too much. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if 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 they had stuck to uh, Cesare being uh, groomed as the next pope, like the successor in the papacy, rather than trying to get him married to princesses. Yeah. I wonder if they would have held on to, to power for longer. That maybe would have had a better shot at establishing a long-term hold. Yeah, you see, if they had been that they... If he'd even liked one of his other sons enough to... <laughs> to start marrying them off but he really kind of put all of his eggs in the basket of just the of the three really Um, and then once Juan was dead uh, he put everything into Cesare and then it kind of fell apart because Cesare was a bit of a prick yeah they were not hugely mourned nobody seems to have liked them partly for the reasons that they were they really shook things up like they really did try to change what the papacy was um, and they did not take the papacy seriously at all (laughs) as a religious thing (laughs) and also for the illegitimate reasons of them being foreign them being non-noble them being considered to be like being the victims of and of pseudo anti-semitic no just anti-semitic conspiracies yeah but i think in the grand scheme of things like the amount of alleged murders that are attached to them are two (laughs) and maybe three at a push and they're all beatings which are like i'm gonna say an unsexy type of murder (laughs) they're profligate but they're not like worse than anybody else and i'm gonna say that the thing that made me really think i don't think these guys are that bad is that during the during the papacy of 
Alphonse de Borgia, Calixtus, mm-hmm. he had a problem with the Lord of Rimini, whose name was Sigismondo Pandolfo Maltista. Outstanding name. Uh-huh. He, sorry, this is during the papacy of Paul Pius II, so um, Rodrigo is a cardinal. Mm-hmm. Sigismondo Pandolfo Maltista, who is the Lord of Rimini, arrested a papal emissary that Pius II sent to Rimini and publicly sodomized him. Sure. As you the do. The actual Lord of Rimini publicly sodomized a papal emissary in the town square. <laughs> um, that's not great. Not great behavior. It is not. And apparently this kind of thing is just happening. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? They might have done some bullfighting and been and attempted to turn the papacy into a non-spiritual political power, but at least they didn't do that. Yeah, they might have hosted a couple of orgies, but, you know, who hasn't? yeah so so that's broadly the borgias yeah much much less murder than you're expecting there's so much less murder than i was expecting i really was expecting there to be way more murders yeah but there's like juan and alfonso and then there's like a couple of servants both of whom Oh, it seemed to be killed because they... One is killed because he may or may not have slept with Julia, mm. Alexander's very, very young mistress. Yeah. And the other because he slept with Lucrezia. Yeah. Um, and that that's just really not that, not that many murders. It's not that many murders. <laughs> like, I really... That's, and where are the rings? Where are the... Where's the, you know, Jamie and Cersei Lannister shagging in towers? Like, yeah. none of it. Useless. None of it. No. They were just yeah. kind of a normal, power-grabbing European family. Yeah, I think this period just real sucked. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when you're next watching the Horrible Histories song from which I learned how to pronounce Cesare <laughs> about the Borgias, which I will link, then uh, remember that it's all terrible rumour and speculation about yeah. a, a medium, horrible family. Yeah. Um, so what, what are we talking about next time? Now, we're still talking about the church, actually, mm. but we're going to talk about the opposite of these guys. We've got a question from Demian Hammerschmidt, also a great name. A lot of Hammerschmidts listen to us, who's asked, who are the most badass saints and martyrs? So we're going to talk about people who died for their religious faith mm. and the so horrible ways in which they did. That's got loads of murders. Yeah. Yeah. Some pretty uh, brutal ones also. Yeah. So yeah, so that's what we're going to be doing. So that will be horrible. <laughs> Until then, if you have a question for us, you can tell us on historyofsexy.com. Um, yes. You can do everything you there. You can support us as well. And I just want to say thank you very much to the people who support us regularly. We appreciate very much everybody who buys us a coffee. You can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com and... It is enormously delightful when people do, but there are some people who support us regularly, even though they don't actually really get anything delightful out of it. So I'm going to say thank you to you personally. (laughs) So thank you to Anna Helmkin and Sandra and Sarah Jones and uh, Neve, Connor W, uh, Franzi, um, Joanna, Ida, Emily Funk Funk Funk, great name. Great. (laughs) <laughs> Amanda Hendrickson and three people who have stayed anonymous so I won't read your names out but to the three of you who support us as Kofi supporter you are enormously appreciated yeah thank you so and much and I would say a very personal thank you to all of you so thank you very much
yeah, um, you're the best. Yeah. Right? But so if you would like to be supported and have me read your name out, then then, <laughs> then you can do that at Kofi.com and you can give us three quid a month and it helps us pay our bills and we enormously appreciate it and means that we can be more regular because we don't have to worry about paying our bills quite so much. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always nice. But until next time. Bye,